Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we have some student affairs innovators joining us to think and rethink student affairs work. What should we restore to what was, what should evolve, and what should completely transform? Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We hope you'll find these conversations make a contribution to the field and are restorative to the profession. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays, and you can find us at studentaffairsnow.com or on social media. Today, we welcome our new sponsor, uh, Leadershape. Leadershape is a not-for-profit organization that has been partnering with colleges, universities, and organizations creating transformational leadership experiences since 1986. With a focus on creating a more just, caring, and thriving world, Leadership Leadershape provides both virtual and in-person leadership development opportunities for students and professionals. When you partner with Leadershape, you will receive quality development experiences that engage learners in topics of courageous dialogue, integrity, equity, resilience, and community building. To find out more about their virtual programs, please visit them at leadershape.org slash virtual programs. You can also learn more about them on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Today's episode is also sponsored by Anthology. Is your goal to engage in effective assessment, boost data fluency, and empower staff with strategic data collection, documented analysis, and use of results for change? No matter where your campus is in the assessment journey, Anthology, formerly Campus Labs, can help you figure out what's next with a short assessment and receive customized results and tailored recommendations to address your most immediate assessment needs. Learn more about how Anthology's products and expert consultation can empower your division with actionable data by visiting campuslabs.com SA now. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach. You can find out more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm hosting this conversation today from Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is the ancestral homeland of the Dakota and Ojibwe peoples. The framing to today's episode came from an article or really a blog post in EDUCAUSE about how IT work in higher education and K-12 education should shift on the other side of the COVID pandemic. They asked what should restore to what was, what should evolve and get a little bit better, and what should completely transform. So we thought we'd pose these questions to some well-known student affairs innovators. Um, each of you is well-known for your innovative thinking and eagerness to be unconventional. So we're so excited to have you here to help us think and rethink. To get this started, love to hear a little bit about each of you, and then we'll see what you want to restore, evolve, and transform. So uh, share with us a little bit. We'll start with Ebony. Share with us a little bit about who you are and your role and uh, a little bit about the work that you do. Thanks for having me, Keith. I'm Ebony Zamani Gallagher. I'm at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. At Champaign here, I have a couple of different hats that I wear. I am a professor in education policy organization and leadership in our higher education division. I teach a course in community college leadership, policy analysis, dissertation writing, you name it. I teach it. Thank you for taking time to be here. I really appreciate that. Lolo, let's go to you next. Tell us a little bit about you. Aloha, everyone. So glad to be here, and thanks for uh, inviting me to be part of this opportunity to engage in some fierce dialogue. Mm -hmm. So I am currently serving as the inaugural Associate Vice Chancellor for Student Affairs and Enrollment Management for the California State University System. We are the largest public four-year university and generally also recognized as serving the most diverse student population uh, in the country. We have over 480,000 students that we serve across 23 campuses of the great state of California, and they span northernmost at Humboldt State University and go all the way down to the southernmost part of the state at San Diego State University. So I've been in this role now for just about two years after I spent uh, just over five years serving as the senior student affairs officer at one of the 23 campuses, San Francisco State University. Uh, so it's, uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So Wonderful. Thank you. TJ, tell us a little bit about you. Hey, everybody. Keith, thanks for having me. Uh, my name is TJ Logan. I serve as the Associate Vice President for Student Affairs at Temple University here in Philadelphia. Uh, in my role, I oversee mainly operational pieces. I've got a comprehensive housing and residence life program. I've got student center operations on multiple campuses. I've got oversight of our divisional finance, divisional strategic planning, things like that. Um, and, and like Lola, really looking forward to a, a great conversation about this framework. Awesome. 
Well, let's let's stick with you, TAGA, um, as I shared, and we'll put this uh, short little article in the show notes, but really the article is not that profound. It's just these three prompts. What should restore to mm. what was? What should evolve and improve a little bit and take a few steps forward? And what should completely transform on the other side of this COVID pandemic, which I think we're learning now is going to sort of be a bell curve or, or a curve rather than an end, right? This yeah. is going to continue on and sort of slow. Um, but what have, what have you been thinking about? What are you eager to go back hmm. to the way things were? What are you looking forward yeah. to? And what do you hope will go back to the way we had it before? People. No, uh, it, they, <laughs> right? Seeing people. No, but in, it, it, that's kind of a joke and kind of not. When I, when I think back to the beginning of this pandemic, I, I think about the things that people were writing, the things that people were talking about. And for me personally, being someone who, who likes to think a little bit outside the box, I saw it as a great opportunity, right? right? Let no crisis go wasted. And part of that opportunity was saying, what are we going to learn about what's important? What are we going to learn about what's important about face-to-face and community and the traditional college experience? We're going to pull back the curtain on, on the finances of higher ed. We're going to have a more uh, informed consumer than we've ever had in our life. And I think we've gotten there. And on the other end of this, you know, if I were a betting man, I would have said, we probably don't need some of the same structures in place that, that we have now as it relates to the traditional college experience. And, and now we're far enough into this thing, I think we can look at some data. You know, if you look at Strata has done some stuff, uh, Ithaca SNR has done some stuff, ACC has done some stuff, Brightspot and WeWork did some, Deloitte has done some studies. And you look at the, the, the data that we know about thus far, and what we're learning is that the traditional college experience is pretty darned important. It's pretty, it was, it was important to students before they got here. Simpson Scarborough told us that, but it's also important now that they're taking classes, a majority of which is online or hybrid. And we're looking at cohorts of students and realizing that a, a, a college experience was pretty much as important as student affairs folks always felt that it was. And it's not anecdotal anymore. We don't just feel it. We're seeing it and we're seeing the data in, in terms of what it means to student success. We're seeing what it means in terms of, you know, a, a recent study said one in 10 students reported they felt as though they were connected to their institution or had a sense of belonging. That's, that's huge. Three out of five students saying that they have housing insecurity or food insecurity. That's huge. There have been these massive impacts on student success. And now we're not just anecdotally saying it's important. Now we're saying we know it's important. And how do we restore some of those elements? Uh, you know, I always joke and I say, what portion of tuition pays for Frisbee in the quad? I know that's a, an oversimplification. <laughs> but at the end of the day, when you ask students, you know, how, is, how does your, your dollars go in and what are you getting out? It, it turns out the experience is pretty darn important, according to what we now know. And so if you were to ask me to, to sum up what is the thing we need to restore, I really think it's a college experience and I say traditional college experience, and I, I don't mean that to exclude community colleges or um, different types of institutions, but I mean it to say that there's something about community that we have found to be critically important. And I think it's important that we find ways to restore that. There's going to be a caveat with that, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. Right, right. Yeah, and I, I echo that. I think I'm hearing not everyone, not just college students, really craving connection and meaning. Um, and where they can find that in community and, and the traditional college experience. What about you, Lolo? What are you looking forward to to returning to and, and restoring the way it was before March 13th? Um, I, so some of us went to working from home later and some a little bit earlier. So I think I, I want to echo a lot of what, what TJ said, and, and perhaps it's the concept or the promise um, of what a college experience might be like. I get asked so often, will we ever go back to brick and mortar? Will we ever go back to the campus? Will we, is, has that become an obsolete concept, if you will? And I think I compare it a little bit when we went through the, the MOOC scare, right? That there was concern like, oh, well, we don't need to build any more buildings, right? That will, that will save money. We can reduce on deferred maintenance and, and those kinds of things. And I think the fear was bigger than, than the reality is that we, we, was, we withstood that, we sustained, and we discovered that while MOOCs have a place and can certainly serve um, certain students in certain settings, that fundamentally there is the importance of place in our lives, uh, and we know that because I think part of the impacts on mental health as a nation, right, for all from young to, to the oldest of our uh, generations, 
the fact that we've been stuck in place, both figuratively and physically and literally, I think has been a stressor for people. So do, is there an, an idea of what the higher education experience ought to be that we want to go back to? Um, I do think that that is there. I also think we have to think about it being different. And, and TJ referenced different institutional types. I also think regardless of the institutional type, they're different students. Uh, and so I do think that when you think about higher education, it was designed and conceived at a time where most of the students who now go to college do not get to go to college in the United States. So it was created and developed to serve a particular type of student who now increasingly represents the minority of who we serve on many of our campuses. I know that's true for the California State University. And the irony is higher education has a remarkable ability to resist change and sustain practices. I was joking with a group of students and I said, who came up with that academic regalia, right? <laughs> that is from hundreds of years ago. It has not changed, right? Despite right. generations of, of new students coming through, faculty changing, right? Who wears those robes has changed over time, but that has been an enduring aspect. So I think symbolically and metaphorically, that's really important is that we still deliver instruction, services, experience and the conceptualization of what that ought to be in many ways with notable exceptions and pockets of hope right and 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 dreaming and imagining that still serves a conception of who our students are that i think needs to be blown up and i agree the pandemic is an opportunity it showed us where there are opportunities if we are willing to look and listen and hear and engage and respond uh, and go, we didn't know, I don't know. What do we do differently? There is security in doing the same over and over. Uh, so there's an opportunity I think here for us to be shaken uh, and to, to experience that, that feeling of not being the expert and not having all the answers mm -hmm. at this time, so. Yeah, I love that notion about place and how do we do that when, when people aren't living on campus or aren't going to campus? How do we create that sense of place and tie that to what TJ was talking about, community? Uh, yeah, and, and you're reminding me uh, uh, an adage that I got about the, the traditional nature of higher ed resisting to change with a committee for everything. And I, I was reminded as an undergrad that committees are where we take minutes and lose hours. And <laughs> that, <laughs> For great ideas that, go to die, right? Yeah, that's that notion. So how do we speed up how we think and how we change? Um, yeah, true. Ebony, how about you? What do you want to, what, what are you looking to going back to? Hmm, what am I looking forward to going back to? Well, you know, there's a lot that I, I'd like for us to, to consider restoring, um, but there's also a lot that I'm not necessarily wanting to go back to. Um, you know, so I think one of the the lessons learned um, during this this COVID period uh, is that we can be nimble, we can pivot, um, and and while you know I agree that higher ed is slow to change or resist change, um, that there are ways in which you know our conventional wisdom about what can be done, how it should be done, has been turned on its head. You know, so I think there's been a way in which um, we don't necessarily need to to restore what was the traditional, um, you know, thought about work and the nature of work, that work has been redefined. So for, you know, um, some positions where, you know, it was a mandate that you literally be at your desk with bated breath, you know, in the office that folks are killing it, right? They're being productive, maybe even more productive than they have been um, with the conventional nine to five, right? And so I think on the other side of the pandemic, there are ways in which um, not just students, but, um, you know, employees are, are going to want to to push back on, you know, make it like it was um, because, you know, they don't necessarily want that, that same grind or they want more flexibility, um, an autonomy with which to still be productive and contribute. Um, but, you know, as I was thinking about the question um, in terms of higher ed and student affairs and what we need to restore more generally, I would love, like, this is like me being like, you know, 
back down memory lane Monday here, but you know, I'm an OG. Can we, can we restore, you know, I don't know, say like investing in higher ed? Like, can mm-hmm. we, can we like go back to a time where there was more interest in a federal investment? I think that what has also heightened um, what we see in the way of a veil being lifted on um, inequities um, during COVID-19 yep. um, has also shown those fractures relative to inequities um, relative to institutional type, as well as the students these institutions serve, right? And so because there has been a steady disinvestment in higher education, and most notably when there are scarce resources and jockey for positions, student affairs units are more often, um, you know, put to the task of having legitimized their existence and being very vulnerable um, to to cuts. And so I'd like to see some restoration um, in terms of the the federal investment um, in public post-secondary in ways where we then could actually kind of um, gain some ground on retreating from what has been adverse impacts to access, to affordability, to broaden the participation. We say it's a completion agenda. You know, you invest more in public ed, then maybe you see differences in terms of the collegiate experience and the outcomes, and that those outcomes actually might be more equitable, right? Which then could lend themselves to folks having more, you know, educational, economic, and career mobility. But let us restore that. That's like the best restoring answer I've ever heard is uh, (laughs) restore funding and hire because for like, it goes back to that thought I had about how we've really pulled back the curtain. I was doing a a talk for AOA in California, the auxiliary association a couple of weeks back. And we talked about, about sort of the, the nature of the fact that we've ended up having to build these whole systems on the way that we've had to provide funding for higher education internally through auxiliaries. And in a world where shoulder to shoulder interaction goes away, where we flip that on its head, that's broken down immediately. And now, now we've got a system on our hands that isn't tenable. It's not sustainable. And Ebony, that speaks directly to it. So that, that's a phenomenal restore answer. Let's get some money back into the system. to really No, I agree. It. Yeah. And Ebony, I, I just want a second. I think, you know, I, so this is one of the interesting things now about working in the system office is there is no one campus experience anymore, right? I have 23 different campuses that I get to work with and they each have their own unique personality. But I do think that that was a common struggle that during this time where there were budget impacts, you know, enrollment declines, so then tuition revenue loss, and then um, just needing to be fiscally responsible during a time where we anticipated uh reductions in in our our state legislature in investments. And I think what was so challenging was trying to be there and be a source of support for our student affairs divisions across the various campuses, because you're right, there is, what I do not want to restore is this existing framework that student affairs is supporting, but secondarily to the broader academic mission. Which is so different than a framing of student affairs work, yeah. and I count enrollment management in that too, right? Writ large, all the non-instructional. Yeah, we're supporting the academic mission. Direct, there's a direct Hello. line. To what we do, right? We not support the academic affairs division to support the academic mission. I think it's a slight nuance, but a, a significant one. And I'm gonna say with pride. And, and also with concern, given some of the, dis, the, the disinvestment, the divestment, right, from student affairs is, I think in a lot of cases for campuses that had that small proportion that were on campus, right, there were some things that campuses made the decision. Most of the CSU remained virtual room and remote. We're different. I know there was variation, but for the CSU, that's what we decided. But there were still pockets of students on campus. And then as we consider any redensification of the campuses, that relied on the goodwill and support and engagement of student affairs folks, right? You right community on. during this time was sustained by student affairs folks, right? right? Yes, the faculty pivoted, but <clears throat> student affairs, we pivoted too. And that doesn't get, that that narrative isn't told as much. Yeah. And so to disinvest at the same time that I think the salience of what we did and why we do it and how our students needed us at that same period was a little bit, not a little bit, it, it, there was cognitive dissonance there. So I just oh, want yeah. second, third, quadruple, whatever. And the I'm over here being a bobblehead while you're talking. 
sitting in the pew on hallelujah (laughs) (laughs) while you were talking because yeah so much of it too is you know okay so Pete put to to question what do you want to restore but also thinking ahead right so it's almost like um not an either or but an and both when it comes to student affairs right um we we know what needs to be restored but it's almost as if it hasn't quite been the case where um folks understand that student affairs folk are co-curricular partners in advancing the academic mission so that that's almost like kind of getting ahead of us but it's not even about restoring can we just evolve to get to a place where that is Mm -hmm. it is what it is right like so (laughs) <laughs> that is the basis and that we understand that um, so much of what gives students a lifeline to persisting and matriculating and getting on the other side of completion, right, for what comes next. Um, and I'm a faculty member, right? But I understand that, you know, um, the exchange of teaching and learning and how we, we assess learning outcomes is not confined to the classroom, Right. Right. It's in all of these other kind of holistic and wraparound supports that are getting hammered right now. Right. Um, You know, you're you're reminding me of uh, three things I want to mention. And we'll go back to you, Ebony, about what should evolve and and get better. But you mentioned uh, federal support for higher education. I'm also thinking about state. And this is going to be challenging when state coffers are going to be really winding down as, as the economic hit and tax implications. Um, but for, for decades, we've had fewer state institutions and more slightly state-funded institutions, right? Just right. a little bit of the budget. Yeah, or state-located, state not state-supported. state-located. Yeah, we got a state address. And, and then this notion of, of course, we all believe that, that student affairs has a direct uh, direct connection to the, to the academic mission. But I remember one of Susan Comavez's favorite rants was about student affairs folks put ourselves secondary and then we blame faculty for it. So how do we take that mantle? How do we not put ourselves in that place and then be frustrated by it? How do we demonstrate and talk about the role that we play? And our our last episode was on basic needs and those folks talking about, we talk about access. So we let all these folks in, but we're not providing the support to help them be successful. Right. So how do, how do we move past just access and, and letting more people in who never were allowed to go for so many different reasons, but how do we create that support and the critical role of student affairs? We want to shift from now we're restored to what will evolve. What, what, what should keep moving in a better direction? What, what have we started down the path? We want to get further down the path. What, what should we get better? Ebony, what do you see as something that we really want to be investing and improving from where we are? Yeah, there's so many areas and, you know, uh, so the thing about what's happening right now is, um, you know, with, with COVID, again, we've, we've all kind of acknowledged how it's, it's kind of peeled back, um, you know, uh, uh, some things, right? For some, it's, it's an awakening, like, you know, I don't know, maybe they're like zombified and <laughs> sleepwalking and didn't realize that some of the uh, disparities that are out there exist. And for others, it is yet, um, you know, the thousand cut, you know, another reminder that we have had a cluster of crises that have been ongoing, um, and in particular, um, racism <laughs> and, um, dare I say, race relations or what have mm-hmm. you on campus and in society is a place where we still seem to get stuck, right? So when I think about an area where we need to evolve and get better, um, I think it's it's from a place of understanding higher ed as a public good. I think we've gotten away from that. I think, um, you know, issues around civility and humanity and um, civic education and public engagement, um, you know, how we think about fostering social justice, the degree to which we actually hold ourselves accountable for advancing racial and economic justice. I think that that's something that higher ed um, has to evolve um, because we are, you know, but a a microcosm of what's happening in larger society. And and while many of the campuses, uh, folks are learning remotely, working remotely, um, 
you know, all of this still is is playing out, whether it be online and virtual learning spaces or um, on campus in person. And so we got to kind of reconcile and evolve where we are. So I think part of where we need to get better is at least some conversations that weren't happening are happening, but that we got to get better beyond the rhetoric to right-sizing our realities um, and recognizing, um, you know, what's been wrecked for some time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Lola, I imagine you want to build on that. I do. Ebony, I, I, again, just so much uh, agreement with, with what you observe. I Something you said before we got into this section on Evolve, uh, Keith, I, I want to piggyback on, and that's the idea of how to, how to make sure that as student affairs professionals, we don't engage in our own self-flagellation. <laughs> and I, I'm gonna say I'm gonna say a statement that has both and to it, right? Which is, I do think what has been powerful is this student affairs has shifted over time what we focus on, right? So I think we would all agree that the the trend towards to attending to and acknowledging the salience of mental health. Um, and, and student well-being as, as an important concept to attend to and, and this need to support. I know in the state of California, you know, we have the benefit of legislators who understand, who are starting to hear that and are looking to make sure that as we look at this next budget, how can we support uh, our, our universities to address that? I do think the advent and rise of basic needs is now a new student affairs area. I mean, let's just call that out, right? We are, our, our divisions have grown and there's this whole new program area that has emerged and we have professionals now and it's becoming an area of specialization and expertise and it's a unit in, in our spaces. And so I think these are good things. And the same time, I do, I'm not sure that they have also helped us with the narrative of student affairs. Right, because what's happened is I run into colleagues who hear student affairs that, oh yeah, you're the basic needs people, you're the mental health people. So there's a reductionism and an essentialization of student affairs to a small part of what it is that we do. And then we we don't have a chance to hear the narrative or share the story about the other things that we're doing on the other end of Maslow's hierarchy, right? Or higher up on, on that. And I do think that that is where the promise and potential of student affairs is right. There's so much that shows like for leadership development, that's most likely going to come from the co-curricular experience. Mm-hmm. I also think student affairs has been and will continue to lead the way on diversity, equity, inclusion. So I do think that one of the ways we have to evolve, I, I will say this with care and compassion um, from, from our, with our four and, and with our colleagues. Here it comes. Well, I can't wait. Okay. Bring so, it. But, Bring but, it. What, so one of the things that I am surprised sometimes at when people are surprised, Mm. right? And so our pivot to virtual remote, and I want to be clear, that we pivoted is different than that we pivoted effectively. Mm. Okay, so that, that, I want to clarify that there's a distinction, and I want us to think about how we talk about what we did. We talk about, we we successfully pivoted because we pivoted. Right, mm-hmm. like, like pivoting is the outcome itself. So I, I think we, that was a hard lift. I'm not going to deny that. And then what was hopeful was the acknowledgement that we're having learning loss and that learning loss is impacting students differentially by their identity, by their background, by their, by their prior experiences, et cetera, both in the educational system and just in our own colleges and, and campuses and, and universities. Mm-hmm. But I do think sometimes there, there was this sort of like inequity started the day we went to online, right, with the pandemic, and and not as much basic needs. Yeah, yeah, basic needs emerged. Yeah, I have students who who have asked, they're concerned. Will you stop our food? Close the food pantries after the pandemic? And I need to reiterate, we started opening food pantries before the pandemic, so it's not all about the pandemic. So I think one of the things we need to evolve is how we think about and talk about diversity, equity, inclusion. And I will to this day continue to observe that we talk equity inclusion, but we still do diversity. Mm. So let me unpack. So mm-hmm. diversity to me is a state of, of demography, right? Who is here? Who is not here? We got some of these and some of those. Yeah, right. right. It's, it's representation, right? right? Yeah. And, and I think that's important. It is a necessary and starting condition for inclusion and equity work. 
but the challenge is so much of our solution seeking. When we talk about restore, I don't want to restore diversity, equity, inclusion agendas that really are just about diversity. Mm. We got to expand. Okay. So, so I do think diversity is important. You got to ask who's here, who's not, and then you got to disaggregate that, right? So for example, among faculty, our full professors who are tenured, who are they? And are they different mm. than assistant professors? And same thing, students, who's in STEM, who's not in STEM, who made it through the first year. But to move to inclusion is harder because we don't know, right? We all know what it feels like to be excluded, but that's different. Just because you eliminate exclusion doesn't mean magically everyone's included. So we have to do more of the work of inclusion, right? What does that look like in the classroom, in the workplace, in our communities, in our spaces, in job placement? And then if we do it well, diversity plus the inclusion work, inclusion is purposeful work that needs to be sustained. Then you'll have equity. Those are the outcomes and the impacts that we want that signal that a community or society is truly embracing the whole, right, of, of its communities. So I think that's what we, I definitely see evolution needs to happen there, a change yeah. in what we do and what we say. Great. Thank you. Thank you. TJ, what do you see as uh, some things that we can improve? Yeah. So when I think about it, first of all, everything that's been said, it really gets your wheels turning. You know, when Lola said the, the pivoting, it's almost like our, our uh, bragging about the pivot, the pivot being the thing is the definition of the problem, right? We, I, I remember early on on Twitter talking about, you know, some of the long-term things that I hoped would change in higher education. And I got some feedback from somebody that says, yeah, but look at how we pivoted. They said, well, yeah, but that was reactive, not proactive. You waited, we waited collectively as an industry till our back was against the wall and we were forced to do it. That's right. And there's a massive difference between being a survivalist and an opportunist. And, and I think that we, we have an opportunity to be a little bit better than that, to be a little bit further ahead than that as it, 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 with relationship to how we serve students. This all makes me think your earlier comment uh, uh, about systems and about how the, who these systems were built for. And it reminds me of Kathy Davidson's book, uh, The New Education, that, that really eloquently spells out sort of the history of higher education, the structures that are in place and who they're in place for and who they're not in place for. And, oh. and at the end of the day, that they really haven't changed for a long, long time. My worst nightmare from an evolution perspective, is that people are going to see and recognize, uh, you know, I said earlier, I want to go back to community. I think it's really important. I think a college experience is important, but I said there was a caveat. And that caveat is that my biggest fear is people are going to see the data. They're going to say, yes, it's important. I told you so. Let's go back to what we were. And we're going to wake up on the campus of late 21, maybe 22, but the, with the problems of campus 2030, because we've been sleeping for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. As we're sitting here, not evolving, Generation Z came along. They're not at the doorstep anymore. They're in the house. And Gen Z is a different animal that I don't know that we ever evolved to serve. They're the most diverse student population in the history of our country, yet we have a, a broadly not diverse faculty, as an example. They are a values-driven population, yet we are, are not making in our communications and our public stances values-driven decisions. If you look at higher education compared to things like Nike and Ben and & Jerry's, we were behind the eight ball on values-driven decisions and statements. It's crazy. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Uh, it is, right? And so, well, we so make you, statements and we don't back them up with disposition and then right. action. That's and right. so, and so I, I hope that we'll evolve yes. into more of a values based uh, organizations, whatever those values may be. And that we don't just uh, talk them, we walk them, and, and, and we live those things. I hope that, that we become more relevant for Generation Z particularly. I hope that we evolve to be uh, better at serving workplace readiness and certifications. And in order to do that, I hope that we do some of the things that should have happened structurally a long time ago. And we go back to structure, particularly financial structure. And it's that we break down some of the silos in higher education. Within specific institution, I think, I think the siloing is absolutely crushing the way that we serve our students. And, and it crushes it in terms of bureaucracy. It crushes it in terms of, of service. It crushes it in terms of cost. Um, it's, a, it's a massive issue for us. So earlier, somebody said restoring to what was before. I hope not. I hope we're restoring to what is needed. And, and let's take the pieces we need, but, but let's stop being a ship on the ocean that takes us 10 miles to take a right. And, and let's, let, let's take this pivot and really take this opportunity to be nimble and, and shift. This could be a renaissance in higher education if we treat it the right way. It's a liminal time in our history. Well, you're reminding me, TJ, that there's so many, there's so many students who this doesn't work for, right? And we've mm -hmm. pointed to them around mental health, around access, around learning, around broadband, around so many different things. And there are, there are some that this is the best 
right? This is really working for them, right? They don't want to go back to what it was. They don't want to go back. And whether it's uh, faculty and staff who love working from home, a lot of people hate it, can't wait to go back. Some of us love it. And this is great for some students being able to have the flexibility and online and synchronous and asynchronous. And for some some students to not have the pressure of the social interaction and where do I sit in the dining hall is a relief, right? right? So how do we take go back to for students who want to go back to what was because it really worked for them do that for those who this works for how do we both and i think that's something that i'm eager to to see us figure out um to to both and and get away from the the binary thinking which bell hooks reminds us all is dominator thinking so and by the way students have been learning virtually on our campuses for a long time now i I remember doing particularly community colleges right we've been having conversations and talks a a decade ago and and you talked about the MOOCs and the fear right Mm -hmm. and i think that's the definition of the problem we're always motivated by fear never by opportunity and and the fear was i've got to protect what is sacred to me i've got to protect the traditional experience or whatever it is the reality was that students were online taking classes from our residence halls 10 years ago Lots and lots and lots of them. And, and were, were we acknowledging that, recognizing that and moved, moving toward a better way to serve them? No. And, and we better wake up on the other side of this yeah. doing that. Well, we got to get to the juicy part. What should completely mm-hmm. transform? What could be completely shifted? What's the, the, the completely new mindset, paradigm, new way of doing business? And maybe it's something that we have pivoted to uh, since early March, or maybe it's something we're not even doing now that you see on the horizon for us. Uh, So with this one, Lola, let's begin with you. What do you want to see really completely transform? So I'm going to say that I feel like there's a bit of honesty that I want to offer here, which is I think this is the hardest question. And I think the reality is it should be the hardest question because the nature of transformation is that we have to draw on innovation, imagination, get, you know, not just say out of the box thinking, but actually engage that. And that requires the opportunity to reflect, right? That, I think that's why it's hard to be strategic oftentimes in um, the settings in which we work. Because if you're running a gajillion miles a minute and, you know, we sort of have the academic year defines, right? How we think of initiatives, right? It must begin in August and end roughly in May. And then we kind of go away for a couple months and come back, rinse and repeat. And it's like none of the previous year happened, right? So there's some structural things about higher ed that make, frankly, I think transformational thinking and solution exploration, let alone implementation. And then most importantly, the sustaining that needs to happen to ensure delivery is hard, So I'm going to be honest and own that this has been harder. Like this was the question that stumped me more because I'm not sure I have had enough space to get out of this reactive crisis. Oh my gosh, every week there's a new thing to solve uh, space and mode of, of operation. But I'll maybe offer to TJ's point, some of the things that are ahead in the future that we will need to respond to if and in our transformation efforts. And I do say if, because I'm not sure that given the other opportunities and shifts in our student demographics and our reality that we necessarily did the transformation we probably should have done, you know, at each of those requisite periods. But the enrollment cliff is coming. Uh, It got pushed off a little bit because we had a higher than expected, a better than expected high school graduation rate. So the pipeline uh, is, Mm. is, um, going to decline, but the decline got pushed out. And so for those of you who don't have uh, enrollment management experience, it's referring to the fact that all of the projections for us as United States is that by 2025, uh, across the country, we will have a stop, right, in the number of high school, new high school graduates, uh, that number increasing, it will then level off and then decline. And the projections through 2037 show that decline out through that period. So that's one theme. So we'll, by virtue of the fact that high school graduates, which comprise the majority of first-time freshman cohorts, um, they will decline. Campuses will have to, in order to sustain fiscally uh, and operationally, look to other students. And so I still think, to TJ's point, is that there's been this student who's been there that we could have served and needed to be served and has tried to be served, but because we haven't fully embraced them. And that's the potential graduate, right? Students who graduate from high school 
but haven't gotten a college degree. Uh, and in California, what we are finding is half of those potential graduates already have some college. So there's aspiration there. There's already something about those students. So I think the changing demographics of those students are a potential match for what we learned from the pandemic about how we ought to deliver. So now it's going to be, how do we deliver across the continuum of students and not always think about the experience from this, this smaller group of cohort uh, of students. I think the increasing diversity, right? So California is different. We're on the leading edge of the changing face, literally uh, the browning uh, of, of America we're on the leading edge. So for the, for the U.S. as a whole, 50 whites comprise 51% of, of, of the population, high school graduates as of 2019. By 2037, then they will definitely be the notable minority. So that significant shift in race and ethnicity uh, with Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders and Latinx leading the way will also require that. And then third trend, the widening wealth gap and income gap will also change how and, and, and the ways in which we will serve that increasing group of students who for, for whom the stakes of not going to college are even higher. We must provide access, right, to two-year and four-year experiences to have a chance to address social mobility uh, for, to ha- so that we can create those opportunities to, to close that gap. Yeah. Your, your earlier comments about how hard transformation is reminded me of Emergent Strategy and Adrienne Marie Brown's brilliant book, but we can't move towards something that we can't imagine. So how do we imagine this unknown thing that we don't have, right? To, to evolve some things we can see, like we're on the path we need to go further, but to completely transform, um, you know, she pulls from a lot of science fiction to imagine what could be, and how do we imagine things that aren't here and then work toward them? That I think is really challenging work. Ebony, what are you hoping will completely be upended here and completely transform? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I think that um, the piece about, you know, how we have the dwindling um, numbers of uh, high school, you know, with no lag time in between going from high school to to college is uh, a reality and how we have to transform for that. I think that um, there's a couple different things. So uh, when we look at community college enrollments, particularly during this pandemic, um, you know, conventional wisdom suggested that you know, when there's a a downturn in the economy, uh, increased joblessness, we usually see an uptick, right? So like business is good for higher ed when there are, you know, some economic woes, more uh, generally speaking, but that's not this, right? Um, And so we've seen those declines. And what has really kept community colleges, um, you know, kind of uh, up to date in terms of not hemorrhaging (laughs) as much our high school students, right, ironically. So I think while there is still, um, you know, um, a dwindling and, and kind of evening off, that there are still opportunities to think about um, doing things differently or transforming accelerated pathways for those that are high school students. Because right now, roughly about a third of, of folks enrolled in community colleges during COVID right now are actually dual enrollment. They're concurrent enrollment students. And so the high school students are actually helping yes. um, financially keep uh, some stability for our two-year. So um, I think the other part in terms of opportunity where, um, you know, the, the whole, you know, bit about we need new markets or new students. There's been a perennial problem in terms of, of barriers to completion, and we, we need to have some um, aims um, for improvement for adult learners. So by adult learners, I mean like that 24 to 60, uh, 25 to 64 year old, right? And I think when we consider that nearly half of all undergraduates are in community colleges, that two out of five of every person that has a baccalaureate degree has um, completed significant credit hours at a community college. I think part of the transformation needed is for us to redefine student success, whereby community colleges are playing a huge role in the trajectory of of students' um, post-secondary careers as well as their completion, but they show up as attrition and they're not getting credit for having um, 
you know, you know, played again, like I said, a very significant role. So when you consider that learning is ubiquitous, when you consider the adult learner um, and think about how we can revisit and transform, um, you know, uh, credit for prior learning, um, you know, military service, you know, credentials as you go, stackable incrementalism in terms of post-secondary pathways. I think the transformation has to come in a form of a remodel in that way where we can align um, you know, more fully, um, you know, an improvement model to, to get there for more completion, because what Lowell was talking about is this neglected majority of folks that have some college and no degree, or um, folks that are adult learners and have had no post-secondary, um, you know, education opportunity whatsoever. So I think that there's some, some opportunities to transform there. Yeah, some great opportunities. And uh, I love this notion of if we can just keep the students who we already have, then the incoming pipeline is um, a little that that can really help with that. TJ, what do you add to transform financial aid? Right. Because if we have new kinds of students, the old way of thinking about financial aid is not going to work. We have to think more broadly. And I think uh, the private sector has to bear a greater share. Yes. Federal state fund needs to be restored and scaled up. And I think every community colleges. Yes. Yes. Free community colleges. Well, I'm just saying we got to rethink how we fund our students to go. Well, we were, we're going to refund how we uh, institutions and we're going to refund students. There's the both and there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. TJ, what are you eager to see transform? You know, I'd build on a couple of things that, that we just heard. Um, I think one is when Lola talked about the students that we serve and who are those folks. For me, the way I've talked about that is in terms of differentiation that for a long, long time, it felt as though huge swaths of higher education was a a big bell curve targeting one big type of student that is one demographic, that is one socioeconomic status, that is one everything. And so that's how you end up with, you know, every institution having uh, the same systemic issues and every institution uh, having a college of education, as an example, or a college of nursing. It's why are we not differentiating to serve the students that need to be served? And so I, I think that there's a, an opportunity to do that and stop aiming at the middle a little bit. Um, the, and I think people are going to have to, to move out toward the tail ends of that bell curve to be successful. I think the other thing I would focus on or that I've, I've seen a lot of being an operations person is the nature of work. And Ebony sort of nodded toward this a little bit earlier. Right now, you know, the adage that I've shared with folks is under, under the old rules, if I wanted to hire somebody, I had to find the best person I could who was willing to drive to North Philadelphia. And, and, and that, that's different than saying, find the best person you can. Yes. And I think that the rules around work, uh, if we haven't learned from this, shame on us. If we haven't learned from this as an opportunity um, to go out and say, well, now, why can't the best person that serves my students live in Milwaukee, Wisconsin? And, mm. and, and the value added of, of giving people uh, flexibility in their life. And, and uh, an understanding of, of sense of place where they're at and things like that. I, I think that added value is tremendous, but we're going to have to stretch ourselves. And, and the way that I've always summed that up is that higher education is a rules-based work environment. If we shift to a results-based work environment, we can do those things. But that's really, really hard. We, we can't be time card hawks. We can't be mm-hmm. your, your most successful time is this to this. We can't be West Coast, East Coast. We have to be results-based work organizations. And if we are, I think we'll do a much better job of putting the best talent in the best seats to serve our students in the best ways. TJ, that, that is, wow. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know what that also made me think about is I think that's an area of transformation is how do we hire? Like you, what you, what you catalyzed for me was just about including what are the right minimum qualifications, right? Right. So we, I think somewhere earlier, I I think Emily, you may mention this, but we have to diversify who we hire. That's got to happen across the faculty, across all fields. Right. And it's got to be across the staff at all levels, entry level to the top levels of management. But what just continues to fascinate me is we have the same position descriptions with the same minimum yep. qualifications. We have the same old fashioned, age old, time proven ideas of who should be a provost and who should be a vice president, yep. and who should be president, right? That, that's real key, that topmost leadership mm-hmm. position. 
I'm on another national board that's trying to get parity for women and women mm. of color um, at the CEO position for institutions mm. of higher education. So our goal is parity, right? Women are 50%, actually a little more than 50% in higher education enrollment. So we're hoping that presidents ought to be represented. Right. And we have stalled on that right. goal. And you add the pandemic and the financial implications of that. Women are dropping out at higher rates from higher education in all areas and I think are waiting now or deferring or now just dismissing the opportunity to advance because of the additional challenges they've had to take on with just life and living and family and children and parents right and and having to take care and so what's happening is we've stalled and so despite goals of diversifying our campus leadership and our campus faculty and staff I think we're going to retrench and that's the very place we need to transform So we need to rethink. I love what you said about making sure that we're results oriented. It's easier to count the things we can measure. That's right. right. So I can count, like to Ebony's point, I can count that you were in the office. Harder for me to assess the productivity. So right, because you got people behind behind a screen, you know, right there on campus, Mm -hmm. and get you know very little done compared to someone, as TJ said, in a different time zone who might be working what is our third shift, right? But where they are, um, but are, you know, delivering the results. And so it gets back to what you both were just saying. For me, it's around the the issue of um, mobility, right? In in many regards. And so are we going to be able to come on the other side, come out on the other side of this nimble enough to to be um, sharper with respect to talent management and succession Mm -hmm. planning, um, to build in capacity and then thinking about how we can scale and have um, sustainability in the areas where we have talent, but maybe that talent isn't local. And, and to TJ's point, right. maybe the person who would, you know, provide the kind of organizational development and and not do transactional HR, but transformational right. HR right. is yeah. the person that's in, that's you right. know, Atlanta yeah. somewhere. But, right. but I think, or, or wants to live at the cabin on the lake. That's it, right? Yeah. But, but, Assuming there's high speed internet, right? As long as, right? I, I think one. TJ, of the, let's just get a last little bit here, oh, and then we're going to move to to closing thought from yeah, each of you. Well, I, what I was going to say is, I think the big challenge is when people talk about things like this being results based, and we boot around these ideas. Everybody gets really excited about it, and they're like, "Yes, we can do four ten hour workdays. We can do remote work. We can do this." And, and the thing I would caution folks when they think about innovation is not to get hung up on artifacts of innovation. That's something Clayton Christensen talks about this a lot. Those are artifacts of innovation. The, a culture of innovation has to exist for those artifacts to be successful. And that feeds up to the archetype of the college leader. At the end of the day, are we going to put cultures in place where, where if we engage outside talent and, that are able to be mobile and things like that, that they can be successful? That's about a culture of innovation. We can put the process in place all we want. It, it's not going to matter if we don't move the needle on our culture. Yeah. Well, this, we're, we're running out of time. Uh, to quote from Hamilton, uh, which I knew we would. There's so many good ideas here, but uh, we call this podcast Student Affairs Now. And I want to ask each of you, uh, what are you thinking? What are you troubling? What are you pondering now? And we mean this generally, like in your work or maybe just at the end of this conversation. And I'll just, I'll go first. Uh, the, the, the rules is what I'm sticking with, whether it's mm-hmm. HR rules or work rules or enrollment rules or how we do business or all of those things. How do we uh, break more of these rules or not even break them, get rid of them uh, so that we can be more innovative? Uh, But let's maybe start with, we'll go to TJ, Lolo, and then Ebony. What are you pondering, thinking about troubling now, TJ? Sure. I've been thinking an awful lot in this conversation, reinforced it about that idea of survivalist and opportunist. Uh, Brandon Busteed said to me once that um, there will be two kinds of leaders on the other side of this, survivalist and opportunist. And and the only thing I can think of is imagine an institution that has the resources to be a survivalist, meaning they could just keep moving along, but choose to be opportunists. And and the opportunity they have to build that moat and separate themselves and really be an innovator in higher education. There's something exciting about that. Um, So that's where my head's been. And and again, it's been reinforced. And I I love that bit about rules as well. And I feel like I've been in church for the last hour. I've loved every minute of this. (laughs) Thank you. Lolo, what about you? What are you uh, thinking, pondering, or troubling now? 
You know, I think also the the, the idea of rules, I, I would agree with you. And, and I would say legality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's another, can't do that. There's legal risk. And it's like, if there's a time to incur risk. It is now. Let's take strategic risk right now, right? For the sake of, of a greater good. So I think what I'm thinking about, and, and it's funny that we started off talking about systems. So, so I will be true to myself, is the profound ongoing acknowledgement of the interrelated nature of the pandemics we are in, right? That the pandemic is not just a pandemic that has, there's no one pan experience, right? Around the pandemic, it has been differential. And I, when people ask me how I'm doing, I literally go, I am well, I remain gainfully employed and I have the privilege to work from home and I have health insurance. If I do get sick, I will get the treatments that I need to and hopefully minimize the bill. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, but but you get my point is that, that I have just always tried to embrace and acknowledge that grace from which I I do have. And at the same time, acknowledge where, where there isn't, but, but my point is more about that. And so the pandemic has emphasized inequity. The financial impacts of the pandemic were also differential, right? We have a K recovery. We got rich folks got richer and more people enter the ranks of the poor. Mm-hmm. And if you were already there, you got more poor because the so-called rules that we develop to buffer you from that, they're going to come due, mm-hmm. right? Because we could not imagine a new way to address rent. We just deferred when you paid it right? Because we can't think about how it might look like, right? If we actually said, you just fundamentally can't pay it. How do we deal with rent in a, in a different way? Um, and then the third piece, which feels like this separate hang on, is, is the issues of, of racism, white supremacy, xenophobia, which have always been there, but just got exacerbated over the last five years. And because, got permission. Right? They're all interrelated and you cannot fix one without the other. The pandemic is hard for us to address because we haven't addressed the root cause of inequity, of racial inequity, income inequity. So that's where I am is what is higher education's role in addressing the root cause of all three. And I do think this, in fact, we hear now schools are going to open up inequitably. And again, I'm surprised by what people are surprised by. Mm -hmm. Wealthier schools with more white students and higher income, they're going to open first. Duh, (laughs) like that ain't no surprise. That's just a symptom of what's going on. That's not a new problem, right? That's not a new reality. So that is where my head is. Great, thank you. Ebony, what's on your mind now? Well, you you doggone telepathic or we're just, you know, out here even Steven and like, yeah, twinning because that's where my head's been too. It really has. I think um, I've been... And I actually would, I would dare say uh, five, right? We got a leadership crisis. We got a, a racial crisis. We got a health crisis. We have a climate crisis. We have an economic crisis, right? Yeah. We, we have a cluster of crises. And, yeah. um, you know, much of it, as you already mentioned, is, um, you know, these things are inextricably linked. They are not siloed from one another. I think for some, it it appears as if they're uh, distinct, right? Loosely coupled at best, but that's that's not necessarily the case. Um, and and for me, it it really is about um, kind of a through line of how race doesn't mitigate but exacerbates all of them, right? Because racism has been a pandemic; <laughs> it's like the original sin. Right. Um, and so how do you how do you get to a place and we in the last few weeks, particularly since January 6th and the insurrection of this, you know, let's let's just all get along. Um, we need we need healing and but healing. Right. Absent of accountability or culpability. But I think that, you know, I think where my head is and where we still need to go in terms of, of transformation uh, is to retire this whole notion of all lives matter approaches or a rising tide lifts all boats mm-hmm. um, because there has been pervasive disparate treatment um, and, um, you know, consequently um, 
and equitable outcomes. And so we, we need to get to a place where we actually recognize the hurt and the harm, um, that has, um, been very pervasive and prevailing, um, and, and basically trumping, um, what is justice and healing and actual equity. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's a powerful note. Um, to, to end us on. I wish we had more time. Uh, but thanks to each of you for being great guests today. Thanks for helping us all think and rethink and giving us even more to think about. Really appreciate each of you. Thank you to all. Our, yeah. To our listeners, you can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to Student Affairs Now newsletter. Or browse the archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Thanks to our sponsors today, Leadership and Anthology, formerly Campus Labs. And please subscribe to the podcast, invite others to subscribe, share on social or leave a five-star review. It really helps this conversation like this reach more folks uh, and another free professional development opportunity for us to continue to learn and grow. Again, I'm Keith Edwards. Thanks again to the fabulous guests today. And for everyone who's watching and listening, please make it a great week. Thank you all.